0: this firm, we were like, we have to be able to not talk in a vacuum. You know, all these firms were having diversity and inclusion officers and making these big announcements, but you're still in a model where the compensation model was broken. And it doesn't matter how hard you try. If you don't fix the compensation model in your law firm to make it completely objective, it doesn't matter how hard you try to really level the playing field.
1: Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead, a podcast that challenges the notion that the law lags behind. I'm your host, Seagal Barnes. Each week, I invite a lawyer who's making powerful changes through extraordinary leadership. In each episode, we'll travel through another lawyer's life, identify what they do best, and then devise how to apply these concepts to your own world. So let's get to it. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead. I'm your host, Sigal Barnes. Our guest today is the co-founder and co-managing partner at Culhane Meadows, the largest women-owned national full-service law firm in the U.S. Focusing on corporate law, including complex transactions, IP, and litigation, this lawyer has received recognition from corporate counsel, women-owned law, Texas lawyer, and other organizations for her work in diversity in the law. Please welcome our next lawyer who leads, Kelly Rittenberry-Culhane. Kelly, welcome to the show. Thank you,
0: Seagal. I am so honored to be here.
1: I wish that people had heard all of our back and forth before we started recording, because out of the 60 plus guests I've already had, I just want our listeners to know Kelly was the most prepared. (laughs) And if this is any indication, I know that this is going to be an amazing interview.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that.
1: It's pretty early in the morning, but I'm still going to challenge you to the gratitude question. What is your favorite thing that happened so far today?
0: So I am working virtually. We always walk virtually, but I'm in Denver. And I think the best thing that happened to me today, just in terms of gratitude, was the fact that within about 15 minutes of waking up, I got a call from my daughter, who is a 20-year-old in college. And she was just talking about all these great things happening. She's thinking about law school. She got asked to be on a board and some of these other things. And and, you had all these opportunities, but they created a lot of stress. And we kind of worked our way through that. And then my son texted and I was very upset to miss his first seven on seven football game. But he told me he had four tackles and one pass interruption. And then there's a teen mother that is very near and dear to me. I do a lot of teen ministry and myself and a couple other families have been working with this one amazing woman and her 15 month old baby. And I got a text from our support group and they said she's going to graduate in May. And these were three very distinct parenting moments. And I do include this sweet teen mother as one of my kids. And what I realized is what my real passion is, is these kiddos and helping to mentor and lead them, but also hear about their successes. So it was a great way to start the day.
1: All before 10 (laughs) a.m. Right? (laughs) That's incredible.
0: And that's not my usual day. So let me start out by saying I don't usually get three pretty positive texts (laughs) from children. So it was amazing.
1: What a wonderful thing to be able to connect with your children so early on, not as just a parent, but as a trusted advisor. Right,
0: right. You know, on a day-to-day, sometimes I get to help to Shape the futures of some of these kiddos. I, I just love being able to be a part of their lives.
1: I can see that. I think this is a great way to start your story because I know that you were actually inspired to start your own firm because of your own experiences as a woman in the legal profession. So let's talk first about your lawyer origin story. Okay.
0: Went to the University of Oklahoma, had a great time, played soccer, sorority, you know, social, social, studied. It was great, but like it was really just about. Growing as a human. And then God bless my dad said, Hey, you know, you've got a really big mouth. You are very passionate about certain things. I think you should go to law school. And it was really tough, I'll be honest, because I had never had to work this hard. I went straight from undergrad, probably didn't have a lot of the study skills and tool chests that I needed, but I had some really great mentors there and ended up transferring to SMU in Dallas because that's really where I wanted to practice. And I started in big law, both through clerkships and the first. 10 years of my practice, I was at the same firm. And I was surrounded by these Ivy Leaguers. They were amazing, really great people. But I felt a little fish out of water because their parents were lawyers. You know, my parents were first generation immigrants and had high school educations. I was a little bit, you know, out of place, I guess. So went through there and was up for partner and was pregnant with my first child. And I said, please don't Named me partner because I had an amazing mentor and I did not want to have anything negative be attached to him because he sponsors me for partnership. And so I mommy tracked myself. And I know that's not the most um, PC, (laughs) but that's what I did. I just decided I was going to retire and I'm doing my air quotes at the age of uh, 31. And I had three kids in four years, married, love in my life. And, you know, life was trucking along. I, I represented one client at the time. You really weren't doing a virtual laptop based practice, but one of my clients said, Can you please just be my outside general counsel while you're raising your kids? And so it was great. It was great work life balance. But I did give up a really sophisticated practice, and that was tough, but it, it's what I wanted to do. I just wanted to be present. With my kids, I was a nanny earlier in my life. I Great respect for women who have daycare and nannies, but I just wanted to be there day in, day out, every moment.
1: So you had a conversation with your mentor who was looking to put you up for partner and basically told them like, look, please don't do that for me because I've decided that I want to focus on being a mom. What did that conversation look like? Because- I think it's a difficult conversation to have. Mm-hmm. And I love if you could give some insight for other listeners who are looking to potentially have that conversation. Like, how can they approach a conversation like that?
0: I was talking to my mentor and saying to him, because I was a big part of his practice. And I said, I'm probably not going to come back. And I was so fortunate to have this long maternity leave. that It ended up being almost 13 months. And I said, I just can't imagine working the 100-hour-a-week And being a mom, too, I don't know how to do both. And, you know, I was real fortunate he didn't say, oh, well, you won't have to work those hours. I mean, the reality is that's what was required.
1: Thank you for sharing that. Sure. It's important to hear these stories. Everyone can make different decisions. There's no wrong answer, right? But at the end of the day, to hear from someone who made this decision and the process in which you went through to get to that decision, I think is really helpful.
0: Yeah. Trust your gut. I didn't think of that until this. It, people say that, but the only time I've ever regretted things that I've done or not done is when I just ignored the gut.
1: <laughs> yes. And you said you had three kids in four years, right? I did. I
0: did. And my oldest passed away was sick. And that, that was really my other aha moment. I knew absolutely that my choice was correct. It would have been very hard for me if I hadn't been very present in his life. Um, So, yeah, then I had um, 15 months later, my daughter, who's now 20, and then my son, who is now 17, and stayed home with them really full time until they were like fifth, sixth grade. And then I was like, okay, mommy might be a better mother if she was working as well. (laughs) And I went through a divorce that I didn't expect. So financially, there was no option but to return to work.
1: If you don't mind, I'd love to ask about your first son. Sure. Is that okay?
0: Absolutely. His name was Alexander Patrick Rittenberry, and he was born in January of 2001. And he had what is called a diaphragmatic hernia. We actually traveled all over the country looking for the best place. And I have to say, UCSF out in San Francisco was amazing. They had a clinical trial out there, so We moved out there and again, my big law law firm came through, you know, I kind of jumped over this. A lot of what we were talking about up to this point was when my daughter was born, but 15 months before I was so blessed to have the income, the support, the insurance, and he was two months old and and didn't make it. So we came back. I was living in Austin. Uh, We'd love to talk about what big law got wrong. But I will tell you, I, I feel very blessed to have had a lot of those people in my life during that time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's wonderful that they were able to support you. And I'm very sorry for your loss.
0: Thank truly. you. Thank
1: you. So you have your other two children. You have this time with them. Um, you said you went through some additional difficulties that kind of all culminated together to make a decision to go back to work. Can you speak a little bit to how you got to that point?
0: Sure, sure. And if I'm one of your listeners now, I'm thinking, my goodness, this is like crazy. I have to tell you till I turned 31. I, I mean, nothing ever went wrong, right? I mean, of course it did. But life was good. And then I think once a decade, right? So 31, I lost my son. And then in my early 40s, realized I was going to be getting a divorce and needed to make money, frankly. But I also still had that same pull that I did not want to be away from my children. And I was fortunate enough to meet up with an old college friend. And he said, Hey, do you want to come help manage and grow my law firm? I said, sure, this is a good time for me. I did that for a couple of years. And it really helped me figure out what I wanted my second act to look like. And I was so fortunate to have three others that helped me co-found Cohen Meadows. And they were amazing lawyers practicing at this other firm. And we wanted to do something different. They had also spent their careers building these books and sort of compromising life balance. So so yeah, we formed the firm in 2013 and we've always been virtually based, cloud-based. So
1: this is where I really want to hone in a lot because based on everything that I've learned about you before this podcast, you said that you realized you weren't alone in wanting to practice sophisticated law while also being fully engaged in your children's lives. And when you got together with your co-founders, you set out to offer like an alternative experience for lawyers, making sure that you were creating a culture at a law firm to do that. What kind of made you realize, okay, this is possible and like we can do this together?
0: So the law firm that I was at at the time, and I was more in a management position, it was owned by a couple of gentlemen and they own the firm outright. And we're always very open about that. Frankly, the ceiling was pretty low for me and financially as well. And so I just started thinking, okay, I'm spending so much time building someone else's business. You know, if we could build something that would also help women in my position, because the very first thing recruiters will ask for is, what's your book? Well, I had no book. I mean, I felt like I had a lot of life experience. I had tried and worked on some of the biggest lawsuits. A lot of them I can't mention in terms of, uh, I did a lot of accounting malpractice work and, and there were some very high profile CPA related cases where we're defending CPA firms. But at that point in 2013, you know, if they hired me a big law, I would be a total grunt, right? Working these long, long hours and supporting partners. And I just didn't want to do that. So right at that moment, I think, you know, we'd have to talk to my other three co-founders. We all had different reasons for coming together. But for me, it was having built someone else's business and the ceiling was still pretty low. And I also couldn't offer an opportunity for women in my position coming back into the workplace.
1: So how did you start to approach those within your own firm? Like, what are some things that you put into place to kind of help facilitate this purpose?
0: So when we formed this firm, my other co-founders, Jim Meadows, Heather Hawkins, and Grant Walsh, and then we were joined by Kim Verska as our fifth owner, we were like, we have to be able to not talk in a vacuum. You know, all these firms were having diversity and inclusion officers and making these big announcements. And, you know, we're hiring X amount of people of color and we're doing all these things, but you're still in a model where the compensation model was broken. And it doesn't matter how hard you try. If you don't fix the compensation model in your law firm to make it completely objective, I firmly believe it doesn't matter how hard you try to really level the playing field. So the very first thing we did at Colhane Meadows was um, really hone in on creating a financial model that was completely without subjectivity.
1: How did you do that?
0: It's the traditional eat what you kill And in terms of origination credit, it's the first in the door. So if I bring in a client and I introduce them to you and they love you, and the next time they call, they call you, that is still my client now. We have amazing partners and cultures and people share origination, but they never have to worry about, like, let's say you were great friends with Jim Meadows and you and I are partners and Jim and I are just okay friends. In a traditional firm, you could call Jim and be like, hey, I've done these 14 things and, you know, Kelly's raising her kids and hanging out in Denver. Like, I think I should have origination. Traditional firms and compensation models where it's very subjective, I could be at risk, you know, and then I'd have to tell my story. And then we both have to write, I love me memos at the end of the year. And Hmm. we just eliminated all of that. So the way we did this with the compensation structure was to have a 65-35 split, 35% for the attorney who brings in the work and 65% for the attorney who does the work, and there's 20% off the top. So our attorneys bring home 80% of collections if they're doing work for
1: their clients. Just so I understand, because I've actually never quite been this deep in the origination piece of practice. If I bring in a client to your firm and then I introduce them to another person who ends up doing, let's say, the next Round of work for this client, Mm -hmm. I still receive an origination credit every single time someone else does it, or is it just the first round? How does that work?
0: Correct. So your origination is pretty set. um, If you bring a client to the firm, and you know we represent some really large public financial institutions and other corporations. I mean, rarely does someone own, you know, a Fortune 12 company, right? But what happens is, if I were to bring in the business. Um, And then they want to do employment or IP or any other area outside my expertise, I'll bring in my partners. But there is no expectation that you're anything other than a working attorney. And in other firms, at least the way I was raised, the clients kind of choose who gets origination. If a client were to call the managing partner of a Dallas office, like when I was practicing at Big Law and said, I love Seagal. I want her to be my contact. She is my person. Well, guess what? You'd be getting the origination regardless of how that came in. So we removed all that. The clients don't call the shots. Of course, if they want someone working or not working, that's great. But our financial model is completely objective. It's formulaic. And if there is a dispute, we have an advisory committee. We've got an advisory committee set up of seven, sometimes nine of our peers. And there is times, you know, it's not always perfect, but The advisory committee, I mean, you can think of it as a jury, and it's confidential. So we never hear about it. So as owners, we get to kind of stay out of any fray that might ever get involved. And I think the partners really like knowing that they can go to a group of their peers as two professionals or three and say, hey, here's the situation. How do we work this out? And then they can all talk and come up with, but I got to be honest, it's very rare.
1: Right. Because you have this kind of structure put in place that kind of alleviates a lot of that ambiguity.
0: Right. And we also have an internal market. Let's think about it. If you don't play nice in the sandbox, word travels fast. We have honestly amazing partners who really are very protective of the culture. In fact, when we recruit, it's confidential, but we'll send out an email and say, we're thinking of recruiting this person. Please call one of the managers if you know, good, bad, or indifferent. And we've had someone call and say, I know they have a million dollar book. I know they would be amazing professionally. Um, That person's a real jerk. And I just would prefer not to practice with that person. And then that's it. Even though that is money straight out of everyone's coffers, (laughs) we will not recruit that person.
1: Well, and I think that's really important because, you know, what people don't see and it seems that you see is that this person might be bringing in million-dollar book of business, however they might be sacrificing a lot more money coming in if they're a toxic person and they create a toxic environment. You can lose talent that's going to bring you triple, quadruple that amount of revenue if you're allowing that type of person to come in.
0: And you're right. And, and more important, we founded this firm to really provide attorneys, especially women coming back into the workplace, a different way. And so we also want to really protect the culture because it's really not about money, especially once you reach certain collections as an attorney at Colhane Meta. So when you hit half a million, then you're bringing home 90% of what you collect. If you hit a million, you're bringing home 95%. What's most importantly is being involved in organizations like Nam Wolf and Women Own Law and some of the others where they're really trying to promote diversity in the legal profession and fostering a certain environment. And you just can't do that if you have people joining your firm who are just looking out for themselves.
1: Absolutely. I know we don't have a lot of time left, but I want to make sure that I like understand this compensation model. So if someone comes in with a client and then that client goes to another person afterwards and starts working with them, how does the origination credit work? Okay.
0: This part would depend, right? I have a great example because uh, Jim Meadows introduced me to one of his clients, we'll mm-hmm. call them large bank ABC, right? So he introduced me to that large bank. And I was just working on matters related to their card member benefits and all that kind of stuff. He was 100% origination. I'm just working, right? And I'm still getting 65% of every dollar that's collected. The traditional firm, and maybe I should tell you that, it's about 33% no matter what. Even just working at our firm without any origination credit, you're more than doubling what you'd get at a traditional firm when you consider the salary. Amazing. Okay. So I'm doing the work. He's had 20 years developing this business. Then they call me and I bring in another matter. This is where we are very different. They call me and say, Hey, um, you did so good on this one job. Could you do this other matter? I pick up the phone and call Jim Jim runs the conflict checks, does that. And the expectation is I'm working attorney. There's no expectation of origination because he introduced me to them and I'm doing my thing. And what almost always happens, you it's not required is if you continue to develop and grow in what we call spider out that business, almost always our partners will say, Hey, do you want to split origination on the next matter or a current matter that you're working on? But it's not just like free money. You're getting origination because you are also going to do some non-billable client management, whether that's flying up to meet the client, taking them to lunch, or you know just helping with the billing, electron, anything in the back office. So when people choose to split origination, there is a non-billable element to client management. But I think what sets us apart is there's no expectation. If Jim wanted to, he could just continue because he's managing the client. And I wouldn't go to him and say, hey, you know, I'm doing all this work. Can you give me some of your origination? And I think that since that is the way we set up this model and what comes around goes around because then, you know, Jim is working for somebody and they're originating the client and they don't have to worry that the next matter that comes in, Jim is going to be saying, well, they called me with the last three matters. I should get some origination. That's what I mean about the internal market that we have as attorneys. If someone were to come to our firm and they're like, I've been doing legal work for ABC for the last 20 years or five years or whatever, you know, we have the flexibility with our model to set that up as a totally different client. So in this case, Jim Meadows and I are working away on this bank ABC, but this new recruit who comes in, a lot of firms lose good partners because they're like, well, this is already owned and I'm doing my air quotes. It's a firm client. We don't have firm clients like that are so set in stone. If someone mm. comes to us, we can just set up a different client. They have a different reporting chain, and then they continue to grow their book with that client, and it doesn't impact, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. The biggest thing that I think is really important in all of this, besides having, of course, this model already set in place, is that the expectation is very clear from the get-go. Like When people come in, yeah. they're like, this is how it works, and this is how we ensure that there is a good working relationship. And if you want to have a discussion, there is a forum in which we discuss this. Like it's very clear to me, at least from where I sit, there is very specific pathways in which I can have these kinds of discussions.
0: Exactly. I mean, how many times have you heard a partner joins a law firm and eight months later, they're conflicted out. The joke always was sometimes, you know, firms handle conflicts at the accounting office. And what that means is whoever brings in the most money, the other client gets fired. Mm. And that is not how we roll. So we try during our onboarding and really our recruiting process to really let the candidate know kind of how it will roll so there's no surprises when they join.
1: That's really fantastic. And so when people join your firm, do they all join as partner in this?
0: Yes. And that's a great point too. It's another thing that helps us with this culture. We don't have associates. So we are a law firm comprised of former vague law partners or partners who've worked in a sophisticated legal department in-house or at a boutique that, you know, is devoted to their practice area. So that gets to our billable rate and also why our clients are pretty happy because they might have been paying five, six, eight hundred, nine hundred dollars an hour. And at Colhane Meadows, they're paying a fraction of that simply because we don't have overhead like staff associates were training on the client's dime, uh, expensive office space. Yeah.
1: And you talked about how you you won't hire someone that's a jerk, right? Right. And so what are some of the things that you do from a recruiting standpoint? I know that you're recruiting people that have been partners previously and so on. What are you doing to filter out the jerks and also ensure that you're maintaining this purpose of providing a culture for people that are looking for that kind of environment?
0: I think a lot of our work is on the front end. So if we have a candidate who comes and I mean, I have respect when they come and they say, Hey, 80%, I've got X amount book. I have all these contacts. Can I come in at 85 or 90? You know, they want a special deal, which is very common. And again, it's why I get back to the objective formulaic compensation structure. Um, No, the answer is no. And that sometimes just drives away people. And so because we're pretty strict on maintaining, you know, our model and not special deal for anybody. I think what happens is you naturally weed out folks who feel like you have to push someone down for you to rise. And we've always said, rising tides lifts all ships. I got to give Jim Meadows that. We also make sure that the candidate will visit with folks in the practice area. And usually we will fly them in or we'll fly up there and folks will take them to lunch. And if you know, there was a candidate that I thought would have been amazing. And someone just said, yeah, but their practice is a bit messy. There's a business conflict. I mean, we could make it work. And if we see enough of that, we just generally will terminate the conversations and say, look, it just doesn't seem like a fit for what we're trying to build.
1: Yeah. I think that's really interesting when people are coming in and saying, I want a special circumstance in order to work with you for the book of business that I'm coming into. And how that is a really good indicator that this is not potentially the right fit because they're asking for a special circumstance. And one of the big pillars of your firm, it seems, is that we're leveling it so there are no special circumstances so that everybody has an equal and fair share of what's going on here. And so I I find that really fascinating.
0: Right. We absolutely want every lawyer at our firm to feel like they're at their last law firm, like that, that they won't need to move on to somewhere else. You know, one of our big success stories is one of our highest producers. She actually had amazing practice at Big Law, but it quit for three years, got into art, and she actually became our largest producer. She made, frankly, the most money one year, about two years after she joined us. So on January 1st of every year, every partner in our firm has the exact same opportunity to be the top performer. So there's absolutely no subjectivity. It's all about their book and how they collaborate with their other partners.
1: Absolutely. So I want to get into the fact that your firm is also a member of the National Association for Minority and Women-Owned Law Firms, also known as NAMWOLF. Right? Can you tell me about your involvement there?
0: Sure, sure. So Uh, NAMWOLF, I mean, it's been around a while. They are a great organization. They've got in-house council members, law firm members, and really their mission, their vision is they want to achieve equity and all legal opportunities for minority and women-owned law firms. They really focus on fostering these relationships among preeminently minority and women-owned law firms and the private and public entities. You know, let's face it, right, as law firms, you want to get more business and you would love to be doing work for, you know, some of these larger organizations that have a lot of legal work to share. So what NAMWOLF does is they have events and it's not just like speaking in a vacuum. So the great thing about this is these these in-house counsel, they come, they bring their people and they meet us and they learn more about our
1: firms. That's really cool. If, if anyone wanted to learn more about NAMWOLF, what's the best way that they can do that?
0: Yeah, well, they can absolutely call me. I would be more than happy. And they can literally just, you know, Google NAMWOLF, N-A-M-W-O-L-F, and they have a great website and they talk all about, you know, they've got the board of directors, the advisory council, uh, practice area committees. We're real involved with the committees. Several of our partners are chairs of these committees, and um, it's a great group.
1: So I want to get into some of the rapid fire questions. Okay. First and foremost, what does leadership in law mean to you?
0: Creating a necessary change we've got to change these ceilings for both women and people of color. The traditional model is broken. I really feel for traditional firms, but I also feel like if you're not truly committed to, you know, creating necessary change and walk the walk, it's just not going to happen.
1: What do you think is one step that an organization or a person can do to start the path to creating necessary change?
0: Yeah. I'll start with, if your gut is saying, I am not happy here. I'm not appreciated here. I want to just practice really good law. um, Do not be afraid because I was to just make a change. Like I said, you are welcome to reach out to me, even if you're not a fit for Culhane Meadows. I do a lot of mentoring and I would be happy to visit with you, but also within your organization, look at the people, you know, do I want to be them when I grow up? And that was my aha moment. So I was like, wow, I don't, I don't even want to be them. When I grow up, they're working hundred hour weeks. They aren't really involved in their kids' lives. I mean, you know, I'm generalizing. So yeah, I would say just pull on that courage and, and have the tough conversations within your organization. And then if you're in-house, I know it's overwhelming. I was outside general counsel of a Tokyo marine insurance company. I would challenge you to go back to the law firms that you've spoken to that are truly committed to diversity, who don't just bring people of color and women to the pitches, but then it's staffed by, you know, others in the firm who may have more political clout. I would challenge you when you go to staff your matters, If you could just look at the people, call the people that you've been impressed with who did these pitches.
1: And what I hear you saying is there's a larger theme here, which is that years can go by where your head's down and you're doing things. And like part of you is like, I need to think about this stuff. Right. But um, what I'm hearing you saying is take the time to take a step back and evaluate. Right. You know, who are you working with now? What are their values? Who do you want to be? And who do you look up to? And do those values still align with who you are? Um, and really making sure that you're you're taking time out of that grind to make sure that you're still heading in the right direction.
0: Correct.
1: So to the next question, what is something that other lawyers seem to misunderstand about the work that you do? I think
0: a lot of people, I did underestimate what it's like to run a law firm. I thought the bar was really low. I thought it was really easy, you know, you know, I can maintain my practice and do this. I have not been able to practice as much in the last six to nine months. We're doing some pretty fun, amazing things from a management side. But I would say if you're practicing law, it's hard to practice, manage your practice, and also start a firm.
1: If there was one thing you could change about the legal industry, what would it be?
0: Our reputation.
1: (laughs) We are not sharks.
0: Um, I do think like any profession, it takes one or two bad actors to give an entire population a bad name. I really think we tend to, you know, have preconceived notions about the profession. So, and I would ask the people who are tempted, we have power, we have great power as lawyers. I would ask you to not in your everyday life use that power, wield it on businesses by threatening lawsuits and threatening action because I think we have a reputation at times because if something goes wrong in our personal life, well, I'm a lawyer. Really? I would ask us to to not do that because it's t- very
1: tempting. That is really great advice in our personal lives, not leveraging the fact that we're a lawyer unnecessarily in order to have some sort of more power in a situation. It's really important. Right. It's really important. And it really does feed into a larger reputation.
0: Right. I mean, I'd say it's not fair for the large majority who who doesn't act that way, but it is probably well-deserved given the power differential.
1: Yeah. Great answer. What is a piece of practical advice you can give to our listeners? These are leaders and future leaders in law.
0: Okay. It's funny. I was just thinking of this. (laughs) It is the, and I can't take credit for it. It's the subtract, don't add. I love to pride myself, right? Oh, I can multitask. And, and again, it was my dear friend, Jim Meadows, co-founder. He said, when you multitask, I think you're just doing a lot of things. Okay. So I was asked to serve on a board a couple of years ago. And then again, just recently. And I I just felt such guilt because I thought, wow, this would be an amazing opportunity. And I just started saying that in my head, subtract, don't add. And I realized I didn't just owe it to my kids and my law firm, but to myself to not feel like I have to do all these things that are I'm so passionate about. So I think before taking something on, Look and see the things that you've already committed to. It may sound so basic, but if you're not doing those at the top of your game, I would say take a step back and turn more things down.
1: Such good advice that I really needed to hear. (laughs) No, truly, it's, it's a simple piece of advice, but very difficult to implement. I know for myself, I can very much end up being in a situation where I've committed to like seven different things because I feel like it'd be a great opportunity. I feel guilty. I should be giving more, like all of that stuff. Right. But at the end, you're not actually committing to the things that are the most important in the way that you want to be showing up. Right. Because you're so stretched thin. And so I think that's just excellent advice. Thank you for that.
0: Well, yeah, it's what when you're old, right? All of a sudden, I'm like, I'm in my 50s. <laughs> I'm going to be a slacker. <laughs>
1: Well, you're not a slacker and you're not old. So let's just, let's just put that on the table. Last question. And I know that you talked about it a little bit when you were talking about running, but what do you do for self-care?
0: So I'm getting back into triathlons. I started doing that. Not crazy. And, you know, quite frankly, the body starts to fail a little bit. So I've gotten into Orange Theory and I do it with my daughter when she's home. And I love being active hiking. In fact, that's why I'm also in Denver. We're going to Moab in a couple of weeks. Nice. I'm really looking forward to that. So yeah, being outside, walking the 100-pound boxer that I hope you don't hear right now upstairs, and a lot of active stuff, and doing it with the kids. and
1: That's wonderful. Well, I want to thank you, Kelly, so much for being on the show. This has been such a wonderful conversation. I've learned so much. If anyone wanted to connect with you, learn more about you, what's the best way that they can do that?
0: So Colhane Meadows, and of course, LinkedIn, anywhere else, but... If you go to our website, I mean, I put my phone number, my email. Don't worry about messaging on LinkedIn. Just reach out.
1: Awesome. Fantastic. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. I appreciate it. to get the special offer. Check out Lawline for the best content for leaders and future leaders in legal.